It's Puppeturgy, and it's time for a very special bonus episode about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Have a what? Hey everyone, welcome back for a probably not very surprising bonus episode of Muppeturgy. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Adam Grossworth, Christy Bauer, and Kyle Richardson. And because this is a bonus episode, we are going to be mixing it up a little bit, but we are going to start with everyone's personal feelings and histories about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Adam, what do you have to say? I love Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. This was a huge part of my childhood. I love it deeply. I find it so charming and so sweet. This may surprise listeners, given that it has Jug Band right there in the title. (laughs) But I really love it. I always have preparing for this episode and doing what we do on this podcast, as well as watching it in 2021, uh, has definitely raised some new thoughts and feelings that we will get into. But I still love it deeply and uh, looking forward to talking to you guys about it. Christy? Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas uh, was not a part of my childhood. I first encountered it last year. (laughs) It was a thing that I didn't know existed until a few years ago. Actually, I I can pinpoint exactly when it was. 2018, when people started getting excited about the soundtrack being finally released many decades later. And everyone was like, oh, you must be really excited about the soundtrack to Emmett Otter coming out. And I was like, to to what? Uh, Okay. And so I was shocked and delighted to discover that there was a, a Muppet Christmas property that I knew nothing about. Um, so yeah, so I uh, am a late convert, but I love the special. Uh, I, I just think it is a compact, weird little slice of 1977, and we will get into the 1977 of it. But my feelings for my president, my literal president, President of ASCAP, Paul Williams, are well documented. So th- th- this is my bag. Michal? I uh, also am a recent convert, I guess, to the <laughs> Emmett Otter dump. I have very little experience with Christmas content overall. I just didn't watch any until I was an adult. I didn't know that I could. Like, if you flip past a movie that's in another language, you think, well, this is not for me, and I'll watch something else. At some point in adulthood, I realized that I could watch Christmas content, and nobody would smite me, probably. (laughs) (laughs) And when I finally did watch it, it was a very sweet hour of television. I certainly appreciate the craft of it. And I appreciate the sentiment and the performances and the puppets and the sets. And then also, I didn't feel especially a need to watch it every year. Maybe if I were better versed in Christmas content overall, I would feel more of an affinity to it. But yeah, it's very lovely and sweet. Yeah, uh, I was vaguely aware of its existence for as long as I can remember. But Christmas, not really my thing. Jug bands, not really my thing. Otters, very much my thing, but that's for another podcast. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but the animals are also really, really cute. (laughs) Yes. And like Chrissy, I have listened to the soundtrack before, but I had never watched the special. And in fact, I chose not to watch the special this year until after we went to see the live stage adaptation. So I have a very different first encounter with this material than the rest of you, and We'll see if that changes anything. But I think, like Michal, this struck me as sort of sweet and gentle and, you know, not primarily for me, but I think if I had young children, this would be a preferable sort of seasonal special to watch over some of the, like, louder, crasser versions, even though in the end, its message is sort of just as consumerist 
and gross and capitalist and terrible as all the rest. But we'll talk about that later. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Emin Otter was born in Frogtown Hollow. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, <laughs> Emin Otter was a picture book written by Russell Hoban and illustrated by Lillian Hoban, originally published in 1971. It was adapted for television by our friend Jerry Jewell with songs by our other friend Paul Williams. It was made from March 13th through 25th, 1977. In Canada, that's about two months before production started on season two of The Muppet Show, so right in our current podcast timeline. It aired first in Canada on December 4th, 1977. That is between the U.S. airings of the Don Knotts and John Cleese episodes. Um, and then it aired a year later in the United States on December 17th, 1978, so in the middle of season three on HBO, and then again on HBO in 1979, and then the following year in 1980 on ABC uh, during season five of The Muppet Show. I actually found some conflicting reports about this, but there are definitely multiple versions. I found two different sources about whether or not Kermit was always in it. He may or may not have been added for the ABC airing in 1980, or he may have always been there. Um, he was, however, definitely removed from the home video releases in 2004, because at that point, Disney owned him, and they did not own the rest of the special. Um, and he was then uh, restored in 2015 for an airing on ABC Family, because ABC Family was owned by Disney. How convenient. Although Disney still does not own the rest of the specials owned by the Henson Company. Correct. But uh, they were able to put Kermit back in for airing it on their network. Can we just talk about Kermit's look? <laughs> yeah, he looks, yes, looks please. plural. Yes, yeah. please. <laughs> I mean, he's got this like sport coat turtleneck thing happening. Like, like he stopped by on the way from appearing on Match Game. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Obviously, there is a gif of that in the show notes. Oh, I love it. Yeah, all I mean, really, all of the clothes, and and we'll talk about this later. But like, it, just the little the little sweaters and scarves and hats, and I'm obsessed with all of them. Actually. Yeah, but Kermit is in a different 1977. Yeah, than that the one rest looks, of the special. It's very it, loose. Yeah, well, yeah, because I mean, he has he has literally literally ridden in from out of town and, and is in a whole another world. It's amazing. There were various cuts and actually additions made throughout the years for um, for TV length, whether it had commercials or not, and how many commercials. And so, you know, scenes that were cut from one airing would be put back for another airing, and and, and so on. There's actually a chart on Muppet Wiki. Yeah, doing... if you are a fan of charts and graphs, yeah, <laughs> seek out the Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas Edits page of the Wiki, where you can see a beautiful chart checking off whether any segment or another is available on assorted DVD releases. It's pretty great. It is now available, um, fully fully restored with all the scenes, including Kermit, on DVD, which you can get for like six bucks uh, on Amazon. And also it's uh, free on Prime and, and rentable for two or three dollars at all the places and also on, on YouTube for free. Check it out if you haven't. There was a stage version at Goodspeed Musicals in Connecticut in 2008 and 2009, which then was fallow until now. It's currently, as we record this, playing in New York at the New Victory Theater. Uh, we saw it. We'll talk about it later. And uh, as Christy mentioned, the soundtrack album wasn't released until 2018, which I am baffled by. And Aminata was really kind of like an experiment for the, the Muppet people as they started looking towards doing things like the Muppet movie and the Dark Crystal 
and you can tell. Uh, Kermit rides a bike. There's you know cutting between hand puppets and marionettes. They're they're using very detailed, really gorgeous full sets. You know where you can see the floor, and there's just a hole cut for the puppet. You know, especially watching this in the midst of watching all this Muppet Show, um, which I also think is is very well done and very beautiful. But you can really see the cinematic things that they're doing here. A lot of them for the first time that they're going to be doing a lot more of in the coming years. So the, with this timeline, it's it, it, I think it makes sense why I'm the only one of us who this was really a thing for as a child, because I was exactly the right age and we had HBO. <laughs> and so it was just an annual thing. Um, it got me at exactly the right the right moment. So hello to you in the center of that Venn diagram. Right. I'm just I'm, I'm, ju- I'm just enough older than David. Uh, yeah, I was what, like uh, 10 months old when it first aired and I don't think we had HBO yet. Yeah. It's also like, I'm, 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 we'll talk about the story in a minute. Like I'm fascinated that, and I don't think I've really thought about this before uh, watching it this time. It has almost no Christmas in it at all for having Christmas in the title, right? They talk about it being Christmas and about giving presents is, is kind of what drives the plot, but that's kind of it. Yeah. There's like no jingle bells, no decorations, very little snow. Although they do talk about the river icing over no Jesus, no, none. And on um, Christmas I mean, Eve, everybody is at the town hall or at a restaurant just chilling out. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, I think about, it's about community, right? It's about, it's about sort of the, the larger family of the town, which I think is sort of lovely. There's this thing, which is not in, in the, the book, which we'll definitely get into where um, the, the otters tradition is that they have the, a, a Christmas branch because they don't want to cut down and kill a tree. So they 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 just put a little branch in their house. I'm sort of curious, like, is was that a, a conscious choice to not have a Christmas tree be present, or did someone just think that was cute? I thought that was to show how poor they were. Yeah, but they live in the forest. They could totally just cut down a tree. I mean, they have a whole conversation about. Yeah, that th- that seems like a scale thing to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure, but they also have a conversation about how how Pa didn't want to kill the tree. Yeah, sure, that's what you tell your eight year old. <laughs> that's like you know the puppy went to the farm upstate pot didn't they want to kill a tree w- so we only have a christmas branch they live oh. in the woods just get a tree but they know that having a tree is a thing right yeah i just i think the tree is like the one thing that they could get for free right they got the tools yeah until they don't anymore right anyway just like the lack of christmas i mean the john denver uh special was also a constant in my house so it's not like we my household was not anti-christmas despite being jewish uh at least in the secular way. I, I think that might have also played a part in why it was popular with us. I don't know. In case you haven't seen it, we'll do a we'll do a quick plot rundown and sort of stop along the way. In the we we think the more or less present, but it's a little bit um, fuzzy <laughs> when we are. But you know, 1977 ish. Right. They um, don't have electricity, but they do have a snowmobile. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have yeah. electric guitars. Well, the town, like the, the town, the, has vill- the village, yeah, like the village, and this is much more explicit in both the book and the stage show. In the, it's not really clear in the TV special if they have it or not. But in the the village, they are very simple folk, and this is part of it, right? It's all like kind of poverty porn, in a way, right? So we- yeah, it well, it, it feeds into that late seventies. I mean, what the kids now call cottage core aesthetic it's yeah. like it was the era of like holly hobby and gunny sacks dresses like th- this sort of like weird pioneer bonnet situation was a, a an aesthetic in the late 70s so yeah oh so her dress was not from 1912 it was just what was hip in 1977 a little bit a little bit yeah and they're old-fashioned and they're you know they're simple hard-working 
salt of the earth people, right? That's right. They make their own clothes. Of course, you know, that all checks out. Yeah. So uh, they live, the otters uh, live in Frogtown Hollow, which is the village that may or may not have electricity, which is adjacent down the river from Waterville. Um, really uh, inventive names, which is the town with the main street and shops. Um, and we meet Alice Otter and her son Emmett, who get by doing laundry for their neighbors and other odd jobs around town. School is never mentioned, but I think Emmett's probably, what, around eight, ten? Old enough to use a saw, but that's not saying much because they're all working. Yeah, right. I, f- I mean, I feel like, the, and then this time in this place, like these are these kids work; they do odd jobs, right? In the depression, my grandfather started smoking at like age nine. So, <laughs> yeah in the sure. in the book that this is based on, we learn that Emmett's odd jobs sort of dry up because there's been a layoff at the mill, and so the real grownups are now relying on those odd jobs for their income. So we know that he's not a full fledged grown up, but it's not really clear what that means. Yeah, it's it's that part is really bleak. So yeah, they're very poor, uh, and the otters and Emmett's friends are especially poor, but they are they are mostly happy. They are in their little rowboat on the river delivering clean laundry to the people who can afford to pay my otter to do their laundry. Still, I suppose the fish have just about as much money as any of us this year. Couldn't have much less. Ma, mm-hmm. what are we going to do about Christmas this year? Oh, better lean into that starboard oar. There's old Gretchen Fox on her dock waiting for her laundry. Well, it's about time you got here. Same time we always get here. Yes, you're late every week. And last week when I opened the laundry parcel, there was a scorch mark on one of the sheets. Oh, well, maybe I can knock off a little bit on the price. I, uh... You certainly shall. It's Aaron Oscar. <laughs> it is Aaron Oscar, but she's playing a real pitch. <laughs> but it's so nice to hear her. I miss it. It is. We should mention, I guess, that Pa Otter has died. He was a snake oil salesman, which is straight from the book, and just taken at face value, which I guess in this world where they're all animals is a thing. Like, instead of being like that he's a con man, he literally sold snake oil. So do we think that's what killed him? Oiling a snake? Maybe the the joke, the the nobody wants to oil a snake joke is a is a Jerry Jewell invention, but his his profession is is from the book, and I, I just can't decide like if they're being sincere about it or not, or if Pa was a terrible person and a con man, right? A con otter. I mean, I have a list of things that might have killed Pa, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, do tell. I mean, if yeah, if he was a con otter, there might have been some other preventable accident related to a harebrained scheme that might have killed him. He might have not been able to get out of debt to the muskrat mafia. The Riverbottom Nightmare Gang maybe just didn't like his face. Or I thought he might have died while waiting for a drum to roll out of a music shop. That's <laughs> very possible. Ma is very scared of the Riverbottom Nightmare Band. Yeah. I, I do think they might have history there. Yeah. Well, she's got history everywhere. Yeah. Well, she gets around. She's a lady with a past. They're a direct attack to their cottage core way of life. I mean, I had never read the book until today, and we were <laughs> we were talking on Slack about the we were curious about the differences, like what came straight from the book and what didn't, and discovered there's an ebook and it's very inexpensive. And I was like, I'm just going to read it because it's a picture book for children. So <laughs> that <laughs> happened very quickly. It's one of the things that's actually quite different in the book. They are still a rock band, and they still uh, spoiler win the talent show. But their to- like the their characterization is totally different, and and 
they only appear at the talent show. Like they do not show up terrorizing the village at any other point. They just like arrive at the talent show are awesome and then leave. And their lead singer is a woman. I mean, is a chipmunk, but you know what I mean? It's a, <laughs> it's a female presenting chipmunk. And like, I'm just, it's just, it's a, it's a very different take on what they are. So is the book more pro capitalism than? Oh no, it's exactly the same. I mean, all okay. that's exactly the same. And, and it, like, as Dave was saying, like, it's actually much more grim in detailing the economic situation and uh-huh. like, the, the mill, like, you know, the mill having fewer shifts for the, for the adult animals and all of that um wouldn't the beavers just work them i I don't never mind but the the solution in the book is also more capitalism will solve the problem yeah no all that's exactly the same so 70s so 70s in every possible way (laughs) yeah but there's um there's just there's just more there's more detail um but i just found that that one thing interesting of like oh like just the the makeup of the band is something that the that the muppets made up, I think, to suit their performers and then to also give them more stage time as those characters. Like, they're not mean, really. They just kind of show up. We're like, we're awesome. We're going to sing two rock songs, then we're going to leave and we're going to win. Like, they don't... It's not this whole this whole subplot about them being... Hooligans. Dicks, yeah, hooligans. Which I thought that of the three versions, although I did not read the whole book, I skimmed it. It's a picture book, but it's been a very busy day. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I thought the special most successfully made them interesting i don't know three-dimensional characters but like i thought that the special did the most with the least for them and and they introduced them early and made them more of a factor throughout the whole story instead of just their rivals yeah talent show and i appreciated that in the book it's like what's what's the opposite of a deus ex machina like they just like show up simply so that emmett and ma can't win the talent show in case you didn't get it um emmett explains capitalism to us can you make much money on those pumpkin pies, Ma? Oh, about enough to buy wool for another pair of socks, I guess. Good thinking, Ma. Now you can knit more socks to buy more pumpkins to sell more <laughs> pies to buy more wool. Oh, all right. All right. Oh. Until you die. Oh. <laughs> We're all trapped on this horrible machine. That's and what I- killed Pa, was... Knitting socks to buy more pumpkins. Yeah, to oil more snakes. And all I can think about is all of my my knitter friends talking about how if if they actually charged what their labor was worth, they would never sell anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yay! So Emma and Ma going to town to run errands, uh, but they run out of money before they run out of errands. Yeah. And Emmett longs for a guitar in the window of the music store, and Ma talks about how sad she was to have to sell the family piano, which is basically what's going to set the plot in motion. And this is where we meet the Robotum Nightmare Band. As well, discussed. sort of. We met them sort of. in the very first scene with Kermit. Oh, that's right. Yes, in the actual... That's true. They actually antagonize Kermit before they antagonize the actual characters in the in the show. They knock um, in the version. Bike. They do. Yeah. Um, Maybe in the version that we are covering, or in the version that is this podcast episode, Kermit is not included. So you yeah. can add a. They actually don't knock column. him off his bike. They he he runs his bike into a pole all on his own because he's not paying attention. Oh, that's true. They do steal his scarf though. <laughs> yes, wear helmet kits. It's a great scarf. I don't blame them. So this is where Emmett and Mom meet through a bottom nightmare band. This scene is also the source of my favorite Muppet thing ever in the world. You may have actually seen the 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 blooper reel. Uh, and if you haven't, if you, if you, if you want take nothing else away from this podcast episode, type Emmett Otter bloopers into YouTube 
It is such joy. Yeah. Devote six minutes Uh, of your life to it. You won't regret it. Yep. Uh, So there's this thing where uh, the, the, the nightmare is inside the music store and they're, they're wreaking havoc and a drum is meant to roll out the door of the music store past Emin and Ma who are on the sidewalk. And apparently there's a, on the DVD, there's this great behind the scenes little mini documentary. And Jerry Nelson explains that they did this correctly when they tested it. It worked perfectly, but they weren't filming because it was just the practice. And then they could not get it right for 233 takes. And when they finally got it, it still was not as good as that uh, as that test run. And there's like a five minute blooper reel. Um, here's a here's a sample. It, even even in audio, it's it's like my favorite thing. Get the drum, run, run. It's worth about ten bucks. Oh, run, run. I can't. My feet are stable. I'm just going to lay in the pavement here for a second, son. Spare change? Help my mom out? Spare change? <laughs> All she needs is a bottle of Ripple. <laughs> Who are we, Ma? I couldn't care less. <laughs> Can't we do it again, Ma? Shut up, Emmett. <laughs> just love it so much. In this blooper reel, these characters are performed by Jerry Nelson as Emmett Otter and Frank Oz as Ma Otter. He was performing as her while they recorded, and then his voice would later be dubbed by Marilyn Sokol. So in the clip, you hear Frank and Jerry just clowning around, and it's wonderful. It, it's one of my favorite things about it, actually, is that like, Fr- Frank is giving a full performance, even though he knows he's going to be replaced. And I, I often describe this to people that the the puppets break character, but the puppeteers never do. <laughs> it, it's really as if the puppets are, are just actors on yeah. a set. And I don't there must have been a reason why they couldn't just take their arms out of the puppets. But it like it's sort of amazing that they don't. Because it must have hurt after a while. Yeah, and the puppets lie down to rest, but you would think that the puppeteers would also take their hands out of the puppets. I feel like the puppets rest. lying down to rest would hurt more, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. They're so committed. It's so great. I love it very much. Yeah. And the nightmare too, like just the puppetry, their leader is um is is Chuck, who is a stoat, who is like very mean, but also so cute. <laughs> this cute little face, this little like weasel dog face. He's like a Build-A-Bear bear. Yeah. Little outfit. He's a stoat? He's a stoat. Yeah. His his full name is Chuck Stoat. Oh, I totally just thought he was a bear. Yeah. No, I, I know. He's a he tiny bear. Like, I don't want to be specious about this, but like, I just, the fish seems very impractical. <laughs> well, also, it doesn't have much to do in their act. Like was was the fish just a backup dancer? I, yeah, he's like a go-go like dancer a go-go almost dancer. in that tank. It's <laughs> it's real weird. He like, takes it all together though. Like I I'm not mad at him. Oh yeah, it's part of the act. Like at least in the stage version, the fish gets a little scat solo. I just seem it just seems so awkward to have to have to carry him around in in like a bucket. Maybe for some audiences, you know, not for the Waterville Town Hall, but maybe elsewhere, the fish like spits water out at the audience and that's part of the experience. It's also actually clearly established in that first clip we heard that like fish are like the one animal that is sort of established as not being on par with the other animals. Oh, because Wendell is fishing? Because Wendell is fishing, right? And they sort of refer to the fish 
being sort of beneath them. I, I, it, I well, don't know. no, I, because well, because the thing about you can't pass a hat to fish because then I'll I don't know. Well, yeah, once hat. you start, once you start down that road, yeah. Well, also because Wendell is fishing, so presumably he's going to eat them. Well, There's he's also fishing, the, but he also only comes up with a boot, so it's not clear that when he's fishing, is he actually trying to catch food or is he that's, looking for treasure? I mean, there are also otters who talk and celebrate Christmas, so we're going to end up talking ourselves in circles. It asks more questions than it answers. It's, it's yeah. what we do here. <laughs> Emma and Ma learn about a talent contest with a prize of $50, and they each decide to enter. But Ma needs a proper dress, which I, I question, actually. Uh, so, so she hawks Emmett's tool chest to buy fabric. And Emmett's kind of shitty friends convince him to join their jug band, specifically because he can steal Ma's wash tub and use it to play bass, even though that means poking a hole in it, which will render it useless as a wash tub. Which we know because there's already been an entire musical number called You Can't Put a Hole in a Wash Tub. Correct. (laughs) They both figure if they win, then they can buy those things back along with the presents for each other discussed earlier. I looked up, if if this is in fact 1977, uh, I I looked it up on on the inflation calculator. It'd be equivalent to about $225. All right. Uh, But also, if the... If the wash tub is their sole source of income, aside from Pa's old tool chest, which Ma then hawks to buy the dress fabric. So if they've won $50, then great. But then what do they do after they've bought each other the Christmas presents? I really worried about this. I did too, though. Also, like, he makes the hole in the wash tub with a nail. And, you know, I'm I'm not super handy, but I how hard can it be to fix a hole in a wash tub? Like some duct tape? Some chewing some gum? Some gum? Yeah. A, a nail? Like, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like a, well, a nail would like, rip the clothes, I guess. But like, mm. I mean, it doesn't seem great to have a leaky wash tub, but it also doesn't seem like the end of the world. Gretchen Fox would find out and she'd hold out on your bill. Yeah. My big concern was that he couldn't even buy the piano outright. His plan was to put a down payment on a piano that would then enter them into additional debt that they would have to pay off, despite the fact that they can't even keep their heads above water without that debt. Yeah, that piano was going to get repossessed. It actually gave me a lot of anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. Right, he's very clear that because he's splitting, he's splitting his prize four ways, whereas she would be winning it completely. It's oh Henry, but worse. Yeah, yeah. He is a he is a wee child, but yeah, his friends really peer pressure him into and <laughs> into stealing the wash tub and entering this contest and earning twelve fifty. Do you think his friends are better off than he is? Like, do they not understand how tight money is for his family? And how important a wash tub is? I don't think Wendell is, right? Because Wendell is is also doing odd jobs and also is very stupid and also very cute. Um, easily yeah. pleased. Yes. So it, it's it's hard to gauge, you know, socioeconomic status. It's true. Wendell in the book is a raccoon and is changed in the in the movie to a, a porcupine, which is just the best choice in the world because his little quills stick through his clothing and I it delights me every time. You want to cuddle him, but you shouldn't. Correct. Though actually, porcupine quills are quite soft. I mean, don't make them angry. (laughs) But like, I think as long as they're calm, you can actually pet a porcupine. As long as you pet it in the right direction. Yes. Be very, very careful. I'll take note the next time I run into Wendell fishing for boots. They're all very cute. Yeah, that's, I mean, the the other two friends might just be sort of doing it for laughs. Do any of you understand the physics of a wash tub base? Because I do not. I did wonder, could you do it without putting a hole in the wash tub? Or what, what happens there? Or... How did he learn to play it so fast? I mean, I assume the way it works is that, so the string goes through the hole and then the bot, the overturned wash tub, which is against the ground, becomes like the resonant part. It's like the equivalent of the part of the guitar that's enclosed, but has a little hole. So 
when you pluck the string, the vibrations are amplified from inside the tub, but the sound escapes back up through the hole. Yeah, I assumed all of those things, but then I still wondered how how many notes you can get out of one string. Well, you move your finger up and down the string, and that's how you change the note. I'm sure it's great. I'm sure you I have more did notes it. out of a washed up bass than you can out of a fucking jug. <laughs> oh, disagree. <laughs> Do all kinds of things with a jug. <laughs> when I was a child, I was obsessed with the idea of playing the jug, even though I did not care for jug band music. And so whenever we finished a jug of milk or anything else that came to a plastic jug, I would always try to like play it like you play the jug, which you sort of can. Like You can get a sound out of it. I don't know. You can make different notes. But that was just endlessly fascinating to me as a wee tot. I absolutely did this, too, with seltzer bottles, with plastic. It's very New York of you. Vintage seltzer bottles, yes. <laughs> yeah, I did it with Coke uh, Or like bottles, Coke bottles, but, but like yeah. whatever. It was usually seltzer bottles. And I didn't I, think of it as a jug, though. I just wanted to make fun sounds. Yeah, I think. But I mean, but, but I bet I did it because of The Muppet Show, now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, moving right along, there's a talent show. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to jump right in. So there's some rehearsal happens. The Riverbottom boys harass uh, our friends, while they're rehearsing, uh, they do a song called Barbecue. In a very cute it. treehouse. A very cute treehouse. Yeah. Uh, they are super cute. I know I call this friend shitty, but they're so adorable. Their little hats and their little sweaters <laughs> are really cute. Muppets in winter wear are yeah. always the cutest damn thing. It's really great. And then the talent show happens, and there are several delightfully silly Muppety performances at the talent show. And then Ma goes on. We're closer now than ever before. There's love in our world and we're showing it more. Our world says welcome stranger, everybody's a friend. Favorite stories don't end. In our world, it's Ma. Yeah, and she's better than we are. Man, it it just it sounds like a like a Carpenter's song reject, doesn't it? A little oh bit? yeah, which makes sense because Paul Williams wrote, you know, "We've Only Just Begun" and "Rainy Days and Mondays." So, mm-hmm. like, oh, I might like this song a lot better if Karen Carpenter sang it. Yeah, and if Richard Carpenter arranged it. It's it's lovely, but it's also supposed to be this showstopper where everybody says, "Oh, you're going to win for sure." And like it's fun. But it also has to be incomplete. Right. And it is, well, we'll get to it. But it I mean, I I learned from the documentary that it, it actually is incomplete on purpose. But no, Of course. I mean, probably I mean, as an right. idiot. Yeah. Well, yeah. I know, but like, you know. Um, Let me just keep writing songs until I happen to write two that fit together would be a weird strategy. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> well, no, but they could I mean, they could have just done a mashup, but the he actually wrote it the other way around. It's like you've never seen The Music Man. <laughs> been a long time. Uh, two songs of The Music Man also fit together. I I, I got it. Um, it's like you've never seen Glee. They can stick any two songs together. They don't have to belong that way. I love the song. I love the puppetry. I think it's just a regular hand puppet. And, you know, all the puppets in this have um, just those little black beady eyes that I've actually complained about occasionally on the regular podcast because they're they're based on the illustrations in the book they look like muppets but also not like muppets but it totally works for me here and there's something uh, her face looks especially in this scene like it has extra articulation when she's singing but i don't think it does i think it's just frank oz's hand 
Oh no, I love it. Frank Oz is good at his job. Well, there is that. And so is um Michael Frith and Faz Fazakas, who designed the puppets. They're they're really good. Yeah, there's an interesting controlled stillness to it that sort of reminded me of Piggy in the music hall mm-hmm. numbers. Yeah, it's a similar shot. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with the feet stapled to the stage. That helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as the show goes on, someone else performs the song that the boys had planned to do. Barbecue, uh, a total banger. Just to say it. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun. I didn't. I didn't clip it just because I, I. I didn't. I didn't want to recap the entire thing. Though we're very close to doing that anyway. Um, but yeah, it is actually fun, even for for this jug band hater. So they uh, come up with something else in the alley, and uh, and it's this. How much alike we are Perhaps we're long-lost brothers We even think the same You know there may be others We can always use a friend This family just keeps growing This family doesn't have to end Brother you know, I feel like if somebody came to me and said, okay, you have to write two Paul Williams pastiche songs that are contrasting, <laughs> they would come out sounding like Our World and Brothers because they they feel like the two like prototype uh, <laughs> Paul Williams songs. Like the Brothers sounds a lot to me like the song at the end of Bugsy Malone. It has a little bit of the beat of moving right along to it also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love it, despite my on-the-record <laughs> dislike of Chuck Pants. <laughs> I, there's some, I don't know that I ever really thought about this before, but I love that it's these four boys singing about friendship. I just find that very sweet. Even though like we don't really know anything about these characters except for Emmett and, I guess, Wendell. Like the, this, is not, this thing is 53 minutes long, right? These are not well-drawn characters, any of them. Yeah, we haven't learned that they are, in fact, alike and think alike and might as well be brothers. They, they're there's, just telling I mean, us this now. <laughs> Well, yeah, but like, there's something either I find it very sweet. Like in this song, we actually suddenly get a whole lot about them. Oh, it is very sweet for sure. I mean, apart from the raging capitalism of it all, the the general ethos in the town seems to be very community minded, <laughs> right? Yeah. Although uh, these are the only four children in that entire village, so yeah. Well, and they don't really. What do they need money for? They can just murder each other for food. They're fine. <laughs> but you can't murder a piano. There's a river full of fish right there. <laughs> anyway, then the River Bottom Nightmare Band performs, and uh, the whole town is blown away by the power of rock and or roll. <laughs> We've got no respect for animal burning or fish. The grass does not grow on the places where we stop and stand. They rock so hard. I love the bottom of Nightmare Band. These guys definitely went on to like open for Kiss at Budokan, right? (laughs) (laughs) The snake playing the bass is just like one of my favorite sight gags. Like they clearly really thought about how a snake would play an instrument. And then made it happen. And I love it so much. That was one of the things that was even funnier to see on stage. Than oh, I didn't think it worked at all. Oh, okay. Well, we'll talk <laughs> yeah, about Yeah, just the, the the physics of it were wrong to me. But I mean, it was still impossible. Like a snake cannot. Well, yes, but uh, yeah. 
What what animal is the drummer? Is he a lizard? He's a lizard, yeah. Mm. So what I liked about the Riverbound Nightmare Band is that it's the the same performers who were also doing the voices and performing the Frogtown Jubilee Jug Band, but they really go to such a different place for each of their voices to the point where at this point, I think I'm pretty good at identifying where each of these four main Muppet performers voices show up, but I had to really stop and think about it for a couple of the characters because like this Frank Oz voice is in the family of Frank Oz voices, but pretty distinct from, uh, you know, what we're used to hearing from him and, uh, you know, et cetera, all straight on down. So I like that. In the documentary, they talked about how much fun this was for the four of them to play these these contrasting roles in in the same thing, um, and that it was kind of written specifically for them to to get to do that. I'm about to announce exactly how old I am, but the uh, the, the Nightmare Band is sort of like the misfits to Emmett and the Jubilee Jug Band's <laughs> Gemini Band. <laughs> yup. Down to the, we're singing a song that is basically just about the name of the band. <laughs> I do like that this number feels like a precursor to Can You Picture That? Especially, we didn't hear this part, but there's a section that kind of oh, the, mimics that like patter section. The bridge is note for note. Yeah. yeah. Practically, yeah. I also just, I just love the way that this whole sequence is filmed. It's the most creative filming in the entire special. And I hope that as we get deeper into the Muppet show, we'll see some of this camera technique applied to the electric mayhem because they really, it really felt like a genuine glam rock music video. Yeah. (laughs) And like the fish is actually in water, which is very cool. I don't really know how they did it. So there's a a tank and then they put the fish in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think it's also worth mentioning that if you enjoy Paul Williams in this mode and also enjoy the movies greenlit by a bag of cocaine genre, uh, <laughs> I highly recommend you check out Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, yes. Yes. yes Once absolutely. again, let us plug Phantom of the Paradise. Anyway, so they win the talent show. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice for the River Bottom Nightmare Band. Which, honestly, I mean, I, they are absolutely the best act, but I, I do not find it plausible that that judging panel was going to would give them the win in this small repressed town i don't know maybe you're just a little judgy and need to not apply that to their lives like it doesn't mean that they have to be they were the clear winners to my mind however do do you think gretchen fox like yeah maybe she went wild for chuck the stoat I don't know. I was going to say, I think Gretchen Fox has something going on with somebody in the <laughs> river. Well, here's area. the thing is Gretchen Fox clearly has it in for Ma Otter. So she's not going to pick her True. and she's not going to pick Emmett Otter for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, the barbecue kid is terrible. The <laughs> Most of the acts are in Flying terrible. squirrels are terrible. <laughs> the <laughs> tap dancing bunnies, like they're okay. I, you know, but she seems like someone who would much prefer to award music performed rather than dance to. Yeah. Or she was looking to see something different. She's not the one who owns the music store. Is she? No, that's a, that's a mink. Ah. That's the very uptight mink. We'll get to her. So the doc bullfrog is very kind. He's a very, he's a very kind, rich person. Uh, And he tells the otters and the rest of the jug band that they were all great, but both performances just lacked a little something. What could it be (sighs) on the way home? Ma figures out what it could be and invents the mashup. Say, those 
those two songs could fit together. How do you mean, Ma? Uh, here, boys, boys, I'm going to start singing my song, and you come in singing yours when I show you, okay? Okay. Yeah. We're closer now than ever before. How much alike we are, perhaps we're long-lost brothers. There's love in our world, and we're showing it more. We So apparently Paul Williams wrote Our World First and the melody of Brothers was in it with like was the was the string line, I think he said, and then he took it out (laughs) and used it to write Brothers, which is smart of him. Yeah, It's funny uh, hearing the isolated brothers in the stage version. It absolutely just sounds like a, a counter melody to yeah. our world. <laughs> yeah. Because it is <laughs> more so than in the special. Cause I think in the special, it's got a little more oomph to it. It's yeah. a little peppier. Yeah. So speaking of doc bullfrog, here's them and uh, they're so good. He's so moved that he offers them a job performing at his inn, and, uh, and that's a paying gig. So uh, all's well that ends well. I guess. At his restaurant. His restaurant. It's a. It's an. Uh, well, yeah. What is a it? Cafe. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, it pays it's regular. I mean, pay. it's 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 yep. the it's Waterville's hottest night spot. It's a, it's a, the play. The only place in town. Can you imagine anything more late seventies than your happy ever after being? You get to be a lounge singer. <laughs> you get to work on Christmas Eve. <laughs> they don't have yeah. to be underpaid for doing other people's laundry. They get to do work they enjoy more. It, yeah, I mean, it really does seem right because they all love singing. It's actually established throughout that they all really like because they all sing all the damn time for no reason <laughs> and now they're getting paid for it and it's sure beats laundry and in the in the book they're you know emmett's like so no more laundry and and ma's like we still have to do our own laundry <laughs> and emmett says we'll send it out so uh, you know it is it is implied that it's actually a pretty well-paying gig she asks if the pay is regular when they play regular and they are told that it is so whatever that implies they're all pretty excited about it that's the show y'all so, I mean, now that we've talked about the plot, I mean, we, we, we got into a lot of this, but like, what, what, what else? I mean, I, I, I love the puppetry in this. I was really taken by how useful all the puppet arms and hands are in this, because, you know, after watching a season and a half of The Muppet Show, where there are some live hand Muppets, but, but all the rod puppets, like, there's not a whole lot they can do with their hands. It felt like this put a lot of focus on, you see ma like using a rolling pin and there's you know all of them playing the instruments and it felt like a real step up on on what you could do with puppet hands Mm -hmm. and that that's the kind of thing that probably would not have jumped out at me had we not been looking so carefully at puppets for so long well you know we've talked about the production schedule of the muppet show and and this took they they spent what 12 days shooting this which doesn't feel like a lot of time but it's 12 days for a 53 minute thing you know, and they had enough time to do 233 takes of that, Yeah, they had a whole day to you know, get one shot. Five seconds of a drum rolling out a door versus the, like, what, two days of shooting that they did on, on each episode of The Muppet Show. You know, so they really had time to do a lot of cutting, a lot of, you know, putting a prop on a puppet's hand, all that kind of stuff. The switching between the, the marionettes and the hand puppets you, you know what they're doing. Like, it's not actually, it's not subtle, but in the documentary, they talk about um, actually, like, the the differences between those two kinds of puppets, like just physically, like the, they have to be weighted totally differently. Like the, the neck of a marionette actually needs to be very thin so it can move right. Whereas the, the neck of a hand puppet has to 
have a hand in it. Um, so making them look even close to the same was actually really challenging. Um, there's just all this, all this um, logistical stuff that they had to solve, which I, I found really fascinating. It also makes sense that their arms and legs and bodies need to do more with these style of puppets. Like these otters don't have a lot of movement in their heads. They just have a tiny little mouth that opens up like in the style of Beaker, there isn't as much expression in their heads the way that most of the Muppets have. So it it makes sense that their bodies are serving a, a different purpose. You see more of them moving or holding still and expressing themselves with smaller movements. It's different from looking at the Muppet show. So there's this, there's the, this really cool thing where they, um, the Emin and Ma are in a rowboat and we see them on the water and how are they puppeteering underwater? Uh, and this was apparently the first time that the Muppets used remote control puppets. So when you see them, when you see the boat at a distance actually on the water, the Emin and Ma are, are little animatronic puppets and but their their mouths are actually moving and uh, if you've ever seen behind the scenes stuff of like the dark crystal or or fraggle rock they use them uh for like the or dinosaurs any of that stuff with like you know those those puppets where like there's a puppeteer inside working the body and then somebody else is working the animatronic head with a little um hand thing but like at a table off to the side that's how they were working those those mouths and then like the, the rowboat just has a mechanism in it to move the oars. So that's how that happened. And then in close-up, they're actually in front of the river. And if you if you watch it again, you'll realize that you never see the bottom of the boat when that's happening. So that's just an illusion. So you see the water and the boat at the same time, but they're not actually in the water, which is very clever. It is. It works really nicely. The magic of television. So there are a couple of songs that we haven't talked about. I just want to give another shout, shout out to Barbecue, which is just a banger. I, I love Barbecue <laughs> so much. Um, it's the Kentucky in my blood, I guess. There are two very different songs that we haven't talked about. The first one is the song that opens the special. Oh, boy. We had strong feelings on Slack, which is why I clipped this and not Barbecue. So <laughs> apologies to Barbecue. And also and to, to everyone, everyone, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> She was known for her generous silhouette and yet she was known even more for the bathing suit she wore. Once a pirate tried to steal it, it was rumored he was going to use it for a pirate sale. I'm innocent of such an act, he cried. The fact is that's a perfect And they kept I mean, it in for the stage show. Yeah. Which was astonishing. Well, Paul Williams is quite proud of it in the documentary. That verse in particular, I don't know, he really he loved that joke for some reason about the baby whale. So and it's, since he was involved with the stage show, I imagine. It's a very cleverly written song, and it's so catchy. And it's a very, very, very long, extended fat joke. And yeah. It's <sighs> It's not the greatest, and I've been catching myself singing it all day. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, can you imagine sitting around, you know, with with your uh, one of your parents singing a song, negging one of your grandparents? (laughs) He was like, "Well, this this title came straight from the book, so you know, so it was just handed to me," which is true. But it's only the title. He could have done literally anything with the title, (laughs) and they could have done something else in the year 
2008 or 2021. Right. It's it's allowed. It could have been a skimpy bathing suit. It could have been an ugly bathing suit. Like there's nothing it there's nothing that says that it has to be an extra large bathing suit. And here's the here's the passage from the book. After they finished reading, Ma and Emmett sang, sang together. They sang down the slide with Dora, swimming Nellie home, the bathing suit that Grandma Otter wore. We'll go fishing in the moonlight, and ended up with their favorite hymn, Downstream Where the River Meets the Sea. So not only is the song not described in any way, but he had several to choose from. <laughs> and he went with the fat joke. It's not okay. I'm just going to blame cocaine for this one. <laughs> sure. I think that the only reason it's still in the stage show, other than the fact that Paul Williams happens to really like this song, is that so much of the stage show seems to be committed to replicating everything from the television special possible. Right. So we'll talk about that more when we get to it. But it, I think like there's no song from the television special that is not in the stage show. And in fact, there's a song that was written for and cut from the television special that was added back into the stage show. So I just don't think that this was a project where anyone was going to be able to tell them, you know, that opening number, maybe let's find something else. Right. Well, before we move on to the stage show, there is the, actually the other song, the song that ended that passage in the book, uh, I do want to talk about. Yes. Though our minds be filled with questions, in our hearts we'll understand when the river meets the sea. This is a lovely use of Jerry Nelson's falsetto. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. I, even if I hadn't watched the special, I still knew this song from albums that it was on. It's yeah. It feels timeless. Yeah. It 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 just it plucks the same heartstrings that uh, great sacred music does. Yeah. Uh, Paul Williams calls this a spiritual that's specifically not religious, and he said he was trying to sound like Stephen Foster. He also talks about how. The, their whole little otter society or their woodland creature society and also all of these songs are meant to feel like they've always been there and like they're all, you know, oh, that old classic barbecue or when the river meets the sea. And they do feel like that, like they've just always been out there. I guess I didn't realize until just now that this song is also in the John Denver and the Muppets Christmas Together album, Oh, which is why it was familiar to me because – I was like, how did Michal know it from an album if if the soundtrack to this special didn't come out until a couple of years ago? But that's that's why. I didn't realize that either. Yeah, so on that album, John Denver sings it with Jerry Nelson, but Jerry, in that case, is playing Robin the Frog. Oh, no, I know this recording from whatever Muppet compilation it was on. Hmm. But yes, also, the Muppets like singing this song for good reason. It's a damn good song. This is also one of the numbers that was performed at Jim Henson's memorial service where Jerry Nelson sang it with Louise Gold. Aww. So we'll include that clip in the show notes. All four of us got the opportunity to see the newest version of the stage adaptation of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Three of us got to see it in person at the New Victory Theater in New York. And Christy got to see it online because it is also available streaming. And if you are interested, you can stream it for $25 from the New Victories website. We'll include that link in the show notes as well. And hipster that I am, I also saw it in 2008. So I have all kinds of thoughts. Aren't you the coolest cat? Are some of them about how Goodspeed is the perfect place for Emmett Otter to happen? 
because there's literally a river running behind yeah. it. Yes. Yeah, I I happened the the one time that I I was at good speed. I I was there for a week in like the dead of winter and uh, when I first watched uh, the special last year I was like, "Oh, they live somewhere near good speed." <laughs> <laughs> so a little history for the stage adaptation. It was uh, adapted for the stage by Timothy Allen McDonald and Christopher Gatelli. They co-wrote the script and Timothy also is one of the producers and Christopher is the director, he's and choreographer, although there's not a lot of dancing in the stage show, but he is best known as a choreographer of such shows as Newsies. And uh, like I said before, it really seems like they tried very, very hard to replicate as much of the special as they could. And one of the ways they did that is the stage production is a hybrid of actors dressed in animal costumes and puppets. And some characters are only ever puppets, and some characters are actors but then those characters also appear as puppets when the situation calls for it, such as uh, usually for an effect where they want to do something like a, like a long shot, the theatrical equivalent to that. In addition to the songs from the television special, there are a handful of new songs added. There's a new introductory song for when Ma and Emmett go into town and we get to get a little more of a sense of what Waterville is like. And it was not a, you know, not a banger of a song, but a, a good, moment for the show. I thought that worked really well. There I is forgot that song existed for the last 24 hours until you mentioned it again just now. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Whoops. Um, they added a series of interstitial sequences, mostly to cover set changes, uh, where the squirrels that you might remember had an acrobatic act in the talent show have this sort of series of mostly but not entirely wordless bits where they discover that the tree that they wanted to have as their Christmas tree had already been cut down. So they plant a pine cone and try to will it into growing into a tree in time for Christmas. And those squirrels also then have a charm song number with Emmett, where uh, they kind of convince him that it's worth taking the chance to put that hole in the wash tub and enter the talent show. Uh, and that's a song called trust that branch, which I think is probably the best of the new songs. Y'all Do we need to free? explain what a charm song is? Go for it. <laughs> uh, a, a charm song is is a song in a musical, usually a, a, an old fashioned musical that is there purely for a charm, really. And those squirrels are charming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it, it says what it is on the tin, but you know, this, you never know. The squirrels are simultaneously charming and excruciating. And I don't know how to feel about them because they're so adorable. And also those were the moments where it felt most like this, this was intended for five-year-olds and definitely not for me. They were exhausting on film. Mm. (laughs) There's like a physical necessity to the the scene in one to cover the scene changes. And I did, the squirrels were very cute, but, but it, it, the pacing. So the original thing is 53 minutes long and, and can feel very slow in that way that, Things from the seventies can feel really slow, and that's fifty-three minutes, including Kermit, right? Yes, yeah. It's 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 the the current version is with everything added back in, right? All the scenes that were cut for commercials and the Kermit stuff. And there's now right there's there's new the Doc, um, not Doc Otter, not Doc Hopper. <laughs> What's it, what animal is he? Doc Bullfrog. Toad? No, Doc Bullfrog. Thank you. Doc Bullfrog is now it's, is now the narrator. So a lot of that text is still there. But yeah, like, and so now they've made it longer, <laughs> but with scenes that don't relate actually to the story in any way. But I, it did add a little extra Christmassy 
flair. Yeah. And, and some extra comedy and some extra cute. So at good speed, I, I wish I could remember the, the details of this, but, um, there was actually a, a human character, like a teenage girl played by an adult yeah, the first year they did it, and then I believe played by an actual teenager the second year they did it, and who is now gone, which is the right choice. So this doesn't take place after the animal uprising and all the <laughs> right. creatures have destroyed all humans. Correct. She interacted with those squirrels and was involved in those scenes somehow, and I think she actually sang that song, not Emmett. Um, and getting rid of her was absolutely the right choice, but but also... So, so imagine those scenes even more ba- even more baffling. That's why they were happening. Where, with a human person also Correct. half speaking English to squirrels. Well, I think she was actually speaking English to squirrels. I, 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 it was thirteen years ago. I don't remember the details. I just remember being confused by an actor I like very, very much, being stuck with these squirrels. Yeah, I don't feel like the adding the narration from Doc Bullfrog at the top and the explanation about, oh, if anything happens anywhere, it's going to happen in Waterville. Here's a song about it. It's It added so little other than length. Well, I think this is also this thing that happened. I mean, like if you look at it like any of the Disney musicals, um, you know, where it's like, well, we can't just it has to be longer. Right. People are paying for a live show. It's got to be. I mean, and this is different. This is not a two and a half hour. This is, this is a children's musical. It was what it was like an hour 10 maybe. Um, but you know, it's like this idea that like, it's a full length stage show. It has to be, it can't be 53 minutes. I think well, it's part of the rationale there. And the whole scene in Waterville did add something that is missing from the special, which is it's how they tell us about the talent contest and set up sort of the rules and the stakes. So I, I thought that was good. I mean, much of that scene is stuff that comes straight from the special, but but that element of it was fleshed out a little more. Did you need the song? No, but I think it's good. There aren't a lot of ensemble numbers otherwise, so, you know, I'm not going to fight with it. Uh, what I will fight with is probably the most controversial new song, which was for The Ghost of Pa Otter. They had a song called <sighs> Alice Keep Dreaming. Uh, Cheer up, Charlie. And it, <laughs> It was so weird, right? Endless like it, night. <laughs> yeah, it felt like the moment in, in The Lion King when Mufasa appears in the clouds. Only here, Mufasa sort of looked like Yancy Woodchuck, who's the, the bad singer who does the other version of Barbecue. <laughs> but we're told it's Pa Otter. Only uh, it's with the voice of Paul Williams, which was just a little weird. Like, And Simba is Alice Otter, dressed like a furry. Yeah, the whole thing was super weird and did not, it didn't really <laughs> add much. Like, I, anything. It, yeah. It could have been a moment of like great emotion, but I don't know what emotion they were really pushing for. And it's hard because in the original setup, Pa Otter is really a punchline, other than the fact that like it is sort of generically sad to have lost a spouse and a father. Everything we know about that character is just a joke. And so to try to create an emotional moment out of that without any other real emotional ties, it just didn't work for me. They are they are remarkably chill about Pa being gone. It's not like it's not entirely clear how long he's been gone. And and this is somebody who who lost my own father at a very young age. And and I think because of how young I was, it was like I mean, I wasn't like I was sad about it, but then like before too long, I was like, and, and this is how life is. But like both of them are very much like like they have very fond memories of him and they talk about him a lot, but they they don't ever really seem sad about it, 
right? They've, they've, I mean, this is kind of the whole deal. It's the same, the same way about, about being poor, right? Like the otters are very much like, this is, this is what our life is and it's fine. We're fine with it. Right. We have each other. We're basically happy. We're going to be okay. And so to have this scene where she is suddenly sad <laughs> is actually a really weird turn. Yeah. I al- I also thought Pa Otter kind of looked like uh, Joe from Legal a little bit. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that was yeah. really distracting. It was hard to invest emotionally. Uh, yeah. I was also hyper aware in the stage version of how not Muppety Doc Bullfrog looks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a very frog and toad look about him. Yeah, yeah. He, he looked like a Disney character. Yeah. Or Michigan J Frog. Yeah. <laughs> a, th- a thing that um, that really bugged me, and this was also different from what I saw in 2008, I didn't really like the look of the humans playing animals, uh, which is an aesthetic choice that whatever. When I saw in 2008, the, the, the animals that were played by humans were only played by humans. They didn't do that. They didn't switch back and forth. And I think the choice to have them switch back and forth was a really, really bad one. <laughs> Because I think you then draw attention to the makeup and the fact that they look nothing like otters, um, which is okay. They don't have to. It's theater. I'm fine with that. But it was weird that the makeup choices were not choices that made them look more like their puppet counterparts. Not even remotely. I mean, the colors are totally different. If anything, right? If anything, they were like they were like almost in clown makeup. When I saw it in 2008, the only at the very end when they say they're seeing a reprise of When the River Meets the Sea. And there's like a transition that happens. And and in that moment, Emmett and Ma appear as puppets behind a scram. And, you know, they're perfect replicas of the original um, puppets. They may have even actually been an original puppets. And I, like, lost it. <laughs> because, like, it was a, a complete ploy at my nostalgia. But it worked. Yeah. And that was the only use of those puppets. And I thought it was beautiful. And in this, we had seen those puppets like three or four times already. And I was, I was like, oh, okay. Well, there, there's a logic to that too, beyond the, we're going to tug at your nostalgic heartstrings. It, it's it, that moment where you get to see things as they are. I always mm-hmm. like that. That's a thing that I always love in theater. I mean, any media where it's like suddenly like, you know, something swivels and, you know, the kaleidoscope, you know, moves a degree and we suddenly see things in a totally different way. I, that was going to, that was my biggest question for all of you having seen it live is, did you see any logic to, or any rule to the switching between humans and puppets? Because I was trying to find one and there just didn't seem to be other than variety. They were doing like a cinematic thing. To do like a, a long shot, like show them in the treehouse, show them on the in the rowboat, but but uh, otherwise no, like I, I didn't need any of that. Yeah, it seemed like they were just trying to find a few iconic shots from from the special, so that people would be like, oh look, it's it's the the boys in the treehouse, or look, it's or like the slide. Yeah, Which, I, I get that they tried to do every single moment of the special, but cut the fucking slide. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it's as though this was written for, you know, a generation of thousands and thousands of people who've seen this special many times and are going to say, oh, good, it's a whole song about my favorite one line from this movie. But that's not how this works. I think it was that, but I also I think it may have also been the opposite of that to be like, oh, this is for kids. We need more puppets. I think that may have also been the rationale. 
Very possible. I, right. I, I don't know. But. but if they're setting up an elab like that, that sunset, which is beautiful in the special, and then they like clearly built a bird puppet to complete that one shot that's in the special, so that we who have seen the special a couple of times can be like, oh, it's that bird from that sunset. It's cool that they did that, but did they do this just for me? And it was very confusing when that yeah. happened on stage, not having seen the special. <laughs> I was like, what is that bird doing there? I guess yeah. it's just to set the scene. <laughs> and then we never saw that bird again. And then when I saw the special later that night, I was like, oh, that bird. <laughs> I remember that bird. <laughs> yeah. I wondered what it was doing there. Yeah. Emmett is very clearly a child in the, in the special. Like yesterday, Nelson's an adult, but just like, the, the scale of Ma to Emmett, he is a child. Mm-hmm. And and Jerry Nelson is doing a child's voice. I don't know. From what we hear about Grandma Otter, all bets are off as far as scale. Scale. Fair. Fair. <laughs> um, and I just think having him played by a by a 20-something who was not really directed to play a child, which I think actually also would have been annoying. Right. Like He played him at best like an old teenager, but really he felt like he felt like what he is in real life, which is a recent college graduate, you know? Right. And also in like kind of a fat suit, which also like, that's not actually what otters bodies are shaped like either. Like I just, I, there was like a strange aesthetic choice happening there that it just sort of confused the issue of like, who are these yeah, people? Having them as he, basically humans in clown makeup, but wearing furry mittens and having carrying long rat tails around and in kind of fat suits, it it didn't add up. They were yeah. they were trying for something, but it was a swing and a miss. And I don't actually remember being as bothered by that when I saw it twelve years ago. That's because you're older now. I mean, probably well, also because I watched the special the same day, which cannot have helped. Yeah, you know, and also we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I don't know how much rehearsal time they had, and you know, there's a lot of things going on, um, but. You know, I, it's charming. I, I, I know that they are hoping to tour it, and I, and also you can watch it streaming. So, like, I don't, you know, if this is a thing that interests you, I, I would actually say you should, you should go see it. Like, it, this is not going to ruin Emmett Otter for you, but it is, it is children's theater, and I think for the target audience, it's actually perfect. Yes, you, yes. you know, like, it, um, like for for a, I don't know, five to nine year old, I think this is like it's the right length, it's the right pace, it's. Uh, it's the right sort of like level of intellect. Uh, you know, it's okay that for us in our thirties and forties that like it didn't exactly hit all the right notes. Well, it's not really supposed to. And I do think it's still a work in progress too. So I think if it, if it continues to have a life after this, I, I think they're, you know, the version you see might be different. And I think getting to see Muppets live is actually always a good thing. So it also seems that this is something that's being developed for eventual licensing to schools and communities. Yes. Huh. In that MTI, who we've mentioned on the podcast before is Music Theater <laughs> International, uh, which is one of the big licensing companies for uh, amateur rights to musicals. They are credited in here as uh, being part of the arrangement for producing it. So that implies that they will also be licensing it in the future. Yes. Well, the co writer runs MTI Junior or whatever that division is called. I, I hope oh. they pay more puppet builders to build more puppets. There you go. I'm sure they will, because I'm sure they will also rent out the puppets to anyone who wants to pay for them. No doubt. So two more songs that we need to talk about, which is really a song and a half. One, uh, they've added a little bit of a, subplot is a strong word, but a little bit of a character 
moment for Mrs. Fox, where she goes undercover as Beverly Badger to try to perform in the talent show, which she's also a judge for. Uh, so she gets a little musical moment that's not quite a song that's just billed as Beverly Badger's aria when, of course, her husband recognizes her, unmasks her, and sends her back to the judges' station. Uh, but then, well, really- and I will say, you know, I was very curious in the special because um, Mr. Fox seems so kind. And his wife is such a bitch. <laughs> and we, you know, that's, we never get anything more than that. And this is not explained on stage, but but both his characters have more to do on stage. I only have more questions about their relationship now, but I, I appreciate that we we got to see more of them. And now I'm even more curious about what their deal is. There's also the awkward standoff between Ma Otter and the the mayor Fox dude. Like these grownups have known each other for a long time and lived in the same small town for a long time. Like there's, there's other stuff that's gone on there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, right. Just- and in the stage show, they've added this beat where my otter is not allowed to perform in the talent show because she gets there late. And we've learned that this is a character trait of hers that she gets places late. And so she got there too late to sign up. He doesn't allow her in. And the only reason she gets to perform is because when Beverly Badger is unmasked as Mrs. Fox, now there is an, available slot in the show that that Ma Otter can take. Which I liked added a, a little bit of drama. But then they they also the accompanist is like, well this is our first one, you know, the rules are made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> also I did love her. <laughs> so then the other musical moment, which is sort of a new song and sort of not. So there was a number written for the original special called Born in a Trunk that some people know because it was included on the eventual soundtrack release. Uh, I believe it was unfinished for the show and now uh, more finished for the stage version. And this becomes the talent show entry for Mrs. Mink. And when I tell you I was not prepared for a striptease number in the middle of <laughs> Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas Children's Theater it production, was a lot. I it was a lot. It was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Paul Williams talks about this in the in the documentary also. Um, and he's so proud of the joke. And you know what? I don't blame him. Um, that this was written. So Ms. We, we meet Mrs. Bank. She's the music store owner. And she's very prim and, and, and prissy and, um, you know, upset that the Riverbottom boys are trashing her store. And so the, the, the gag was always going to be, like, it was always meant to be some sort of burlesque number. I don't, who who's... Who can say how it would have been staged in the special? And he came up with this this idea of Born in a Trunk as a Judy Garland song, but they're animals. So, David, which clip do you want first? Do you want Well, why don't you this? play a little bit of Judy Garland and then you right. can do the reveal of, of what Paul Williams turned it into? It's a lot to reveal. I was born in a trunk in a princess theater. In Pocatello, Idaho, it was during the matinee on Friday, and they used a makeup towel for my daddy. That song was from the Judy Garland version of A Star is Born, and it was written by Roger Edens, who was uh, one of the in-house arrangers for a, a lot of the old MGM musicals, uh, and Leonard Gersh. And it's in that context, it's like this big 15-minute sequence that sort of takes us through her character's whole history coming up through vaudeville and into the, into the movies, and it incorporates uh, a handful of 
famous older songs into like this big gigantic medley. Anyway, we could say a lot about that, but we're not here to talk about Star is Born. We're here to talk about Emmett Otter. I was born in the trunk of a great oak tree that they used to build the stage at the palace. But the stage is still my home, and I've got no eyes to roam. Like that stage I've been walked on, but I bear those feet no malice. Isn't that a really good joke? Yeah. Yeah, love that. Not a lot to say, except that they turned it into a fabulous uh, striptease number. A child-appropriate striptease number. Yeah. I mean, is there a child-appropriate striptease? Yeah, Yeah. she doesn't, you know, she is basically wearing kind of a frumpy outfit, and she takes it off to reveal a festive outfit. Right. Well, and also, like, these are animals who wear clothes, so she takes takes her clothes off, and then she has fur underneath. Like, the actor has a costume underneath. Right, but even then, like, she doesn't strip down... To just fur, she strips down to having a different well, outfit on. Yes, of course, but but, but like, and even then, like we... the bottom doesn't come off in full view. Like she goes behind the piano and then reveals the bloomer. So it's they really went out of their way to like take the the form stripping of the out of the strippies without without the actual stripping. Yeah, yeah. There was something about like removing the dress and revealing like just more fur than you thought you were going to see that day. It just. <laughs> It was not the experience that I was expecting. I still love the song. Yeah. Well, then, like, there's a there's a like a feather boa hanging from a tree, and she goes to grab it, and like an offstage voice goes, "Hey, that's my tail," which just was that like such a cute. great little Muppety throwaway joke. <laughs> yeah. If only more of this uh, stage show could have existed. If the whole thing had been the talent show, this would have been a very different. It felt like we were watching two different shows because there's all this snark and there's so much going on between the mayor Fox dude and everybody else. And it's very different from the whole rest of the show. Whereas in the special, the, the, the little talent show numbers are these kind of throwaway things of like they're tap dancing rabbits and they're flying squirrels and they just kind of do a thing for a few seconds. It's a whole other talent show here. Yeah. That was where the, the impulse to make it longer and fuller, I, I thought was very successful. Yeah. Though I also felt very seen by the character in the in the special, the sort of stage manager character backstage, who was just like, ugh, the entire time. <laughs> yeah. In the film version, were there multiple cameras, multiple camera angles, or was it just like a straight on of the stage? Um, I I feel like the, there were multiple cameras because there were some close ups. So, yeah, it, it wasn't just a static wide shot. I definitely think that the stage show is worth checking out if you are uh, a fan of Emmett Otter, whether in person or online. You can enjoy it while being a Muppet enthusiast, and you don't have to be a Muppet completist to to enjoy it. You can just enjoy it. Yes. It's funny that none of us had the opportunity to watch this with a child, because uh, I would be curious, Ew. especially with the... Yeah, we're especially with the stream version of the stage, uh, you know how uh, how that would play to kids. But I mean, there were children there when we saw it. Yeah, and they seemed to like it. Yeah, this was not an audience of children who were not enjoying the show, because you can tell. 
Yeah, no, the audience seemed very engaged, very into it. But listeners, if you watch this, whether it was live or via streaming, and especially if you watched it with your kids, we would love to hear from you. Let us know what you thought. And then we'll be back in the new year with the Bernadette Peters episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Tom Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Happy holidays! The, the wiki has a page for the Riverbottom Nightmare Band. This is not answering your question about the fish at all, but it does list each of the band members and what they're playing. And it says, uh, you know, as opposed to Chuck Stoat on keyboards performed by Frank Oz, there's Catfish for Visual Interest performed by Dave Goles. So Amazing. <laughs> that's what he plays is visual interest. <laughs>